Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning. We're entering that amazing season of Easter when we remember what happened during that last week as the children came in waving palm branches. It reminds us of Palm Sunday when there was the celebration as Jesus rode in on the donkey, but he was headed for the cross. And today we want to focus on the cross in preparation for Easter. I came to Christ when I was 17 and decided, where should I go to church? I'd go back to the church that my parents took me to when I was real small, and then we quit going. And I went to this small church and listened to the pastor, and I actually was in a small group with him, and he was saying things that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, I didn't know a lot, but some things didn't make sense. So one day I asked him, what do you believe about Jesus? He said, well, Jesus was amazing. He was an incredibly good man, lived a good life, was a great example to us, but unfortunately got on the wrong side of the authorities and, uh, you know, only had three years or so, and then he was killed. I said, and? (laughs) That's it. That's all he believed. You know, that's common in our world, that perspective. As one commentator said, men, the world, see the death of the Lord Jesus Christ only as a tragedy. They imagine a visionary martyr, perhaps ahead of his time, suffering and dying for his ideals. Jesus' death on the cross, was it a terrible tragedy or a tremendous triumph? Well, it depends on your perspective. (laughs) From a human perspective, it was a terrible tragedy. A life cut short, very young. But from God's perspective, it was a triumph of eternal proportions. Today we want to look at a passage that is one of the greatest passages really in all of literature. It's a marvelous poem in the book of Isaiah. Part of it was read by Cynthia. It's a beautiful poem that Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was even born. But it details what happened on the cross. And this text Of Isaiah, some would say, well, it's so detailed about his death, it had to have been written after he died. But we have proof that that's not true, that it was written many, many, many years before Jesus was even born. We have a scroll, the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, that was written long before Jesus was even born. So we know this is an incredible prophecy of his life and of his death. It's a beautiful passage in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, going to the end of chapter 53. It is one poem, a beautiful poem. And by the way, this is one of those places that happens in Scripture where you have to ignore the chapter division. The chapter divisions are not inspired. They were added later. It's one poem from 52:13 to the end of chapter 53, a beautiful poem. It has... Five stanzas. 
But it's put in the middle of the second section of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through 66 is the most important section of Isaiah. It's the section of bringing comfort to the people. And 40 through 66, those chapters have three sections of nine chapters each. The center section, there are chapters 49 through 57. The exact center of the center section is our passage. The exact center of our passage is verse 5, which is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. This passage is important. This passage is the most quoted passage in the New Testament by the New Testament authors. And it's alluded to far more times than it's even quoted. So this is an important passage. There's many fulfilled prophecies here about Jesus' suffering for us. And what I love about this passage is it details for us both the tragedy of the cross, the human perspective, and the triumph of the cross, God's perspective. I want to show you something. You can see a picture of this on the overhead. This is a hand-carved cross, African. If you can see it, you can see that the figure on the cross, the Jesus here, has, looks African, which I think is appropriate. We make our pictures of Jesus look like us, right? But that's because we identify with him, and they identify with him. But what I want to draw your attention to is not so much the figure, but the cross itself. What do you notice about it? It's a living, vibrant tree. It's not a dead cross. It's a living cross. And I think this details for us both the tragedy, the human perspective of a human life lost, but the incredible life that comes out of the death. So let's dig into this passage together. Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's about the middle of your Bibles. If you haven't turned there already. And let's look at the seven, as I see them there, I'm sure we could find more, but in this passage I've pulled out seven great accomplishments of the cross that Isaiah in this incredible, beautiful poem details for us. The first great accomplishment of the cross is that it brought the exaltation of Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 52. See, my servant, my Messiah, Jesus, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Bruce Walkey, one of the great Old Testament theologians in the world, says this is clearly a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, and His glorification in heaven. Through the cross, Jesus was exalted. Now, Jesus was already glorious, right? He was glorious in heaven before he even became a man and died on the cross. But the cross revealed Jesus to us and brought exaltation to him like nothing he'd ever experienced in heaven before. He was exalted not just to us, but to all heaven and all mankind forever and ever through his death on the cross. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2 where he describes this and he says in a wonderful New Testament poem, 
beginning in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, notice that word, therefore, because he became obedient to death, because he died for us, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. We just sang that. (laughs) That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How was Jesus declared as Lord? How was he exalted? By going through the cross. So the cross accomplished, first of all, the exaltation of, of Jesus, that let us know how awesome he is, that he would love us enough to give up his life for us. The second great accomplishment of the cross I see in this passage, it's given in verse 14 and 15, where the cross accomplished the cleansing of all peoples. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Let me stop there for a minute. This is a passage that's often misunderstood. People look at this and they say, well, it says his figure was marred, disfigured more than any human being. If you've seen the passion, you know that Jesus suffered terribly. But we could all say, well, yeah, but there's people that have been disfigured more, right? People who have been blown up by terrorist bombs and shattered. But this is poetry. And it's a picture, the physical disfigurement is a picture of what he went through in his soul. He experienced soul disfigurement far beyond any human being ever could. Now, we've all suffered in our souls. We've all been disfigured, abused, broken in somehow, some way, but... He took on the sins of the entire world. Talk about disfigurement and pain and marring and brokenness. He experienced that beyond any man. And then verse 15, So by going through this, people were appalled at what they saw, but even more amazing, He will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of Him. He will accomplish the cleansing of all people. You see, up to this point... Only the Jews could really experience cleansing in God's economy. And they experienced it by the priesthood, doing sacrifices, taking the blood, sprinkling the holy things in the temple, sprinkling the people with the blood of the Lamb. But only they who were sprinkled physically could experience the cleansing and the purity that we all long for. But Jesus, by dying on the cross, shedding His blood for us, sprinkled all nations so suddenly... People from every nation and every tribe throughout the entire world can experience the forgiveness and the cleansing that allows us to come into God's presence. You see, His death, the cross, accomplished the sprinkling of the entire world. It opened the door for all people to know Him. And that's why you and I are here today. Because we were cleansed by Jesus' death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. And every one of these that we'll talk through is reflected in the New Testament in a number of passages. I'm just picking out one or two in each. But in chapter 10 of Hebrews, starting in verse 19, the author writes, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. His death opened the door for all of us to experience his cleansing and his forgiveness. The third great accomplishment of the cross is in verse 15, where Isaiah writes at the end of the verse, for what they were not told, what all the nations were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. The cross accomplished the revealing of God to all nations. The revealing of God to all peoples. Now, how could people know about God up to this point? Only the Jews received the revelation. Only the Jews had the Torah to understand something of God. How would other people, the Gentile world, understand God? Really just through creation, through nature. But what do you learn about God through nature? Well, you learn that he's powerful, that he loves beauty, that he's incredibly creative, but you don't really learn a lot more about God's character from nature. It's limited what we understand. We know he's there, we know he's creative, but we don't know a whole lot else. But the cross reveals to all the world what's most important about God. If you really want to understand who God is, there's nothing that God has done or said that is a more clear statement of what he wants us to know about him than the cross. Why? Because the cross reveals so perfectly God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, how he hates sin and cannot tolerate it because sin had to be punished. God couldn't just say, well, I just forgive sin, period. It had to be punished. It had to be paid for. And the cross reveals that so clearly in the judgment that God poured out on his own son. But the cross at the same time reveals God's incredible mercy and love. That he loved us, humanity, sinners, enough to make sure that the punishment fell not on us, but on him. That he sent his only begotten son to die in our place so that we would not have to die, but could experience life with him. What mercy, what love. If you want to really understand who God is, Nothing has revealed God and who he is in all his balance of character like the cross. Perfectly holy and righteous and just. And at the same time, incredibly loving and merciful and compassionate on broken sinners like you and me. And that's what the cross did. It revealed who God is to all the world like nothing else. There's a lot of passages I could go to. Romans 3, 25. We studied this recently. 
Let me just highlight it again, read it for you. Romans 3, beginning in verse 25, says this. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He says there that, you know, people might have gotten the idea that God doesn't care about sin because he was patient for so long. But the cross sent at the right time when Jesus died on the cross, it revealed God is a God of justice. He must punish sin. But at the same time, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a testimony of his incredible love. The cross teaches the balance of God, just, holy, righteous, loving, and merciful. Now our poem... Let me explain to you this poem of Isaiah. There are 15 verses. We have looked at the first three so far. 15 verses, five stanzas of three verses each. The first, the third, and the fifth stanzas talk about God's perspective of the cross. The second and the fourth stanzas talk about man's perspective of the cross. So we want to look briefly at man's perspective, verses 1 through 3, of chapter 53, where Isaiah writes this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. See, the human perspective of Jesus is that he was a nobody. He grew up out of a really dry place, which is literally true in Israel. But it's also a place you wouldn't expect God to be born in a place that's like a root, a little shoot coming up in the desert. He was born into a little country that didn't have any power or influence, Israel. He was raised in Nazareth, which was considered, you know, Podunkville in the middle of nowhere, up in Galilee. Who cares about that? He was raised in a little family that had no influence, that were poverty-stricken people. From a human perspective, his beginnings were completely inauspicious. And therefore, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. See, again, from the human perspective, if Jesus were sitting here today in this service, you wouldn't recognize him. Uh, he was just one of us. He didn't stand out from the crowd. People didn't walk around and say, oh, see that guy with the halo? <laughs> that's Jesus. No, in fact, people were confused. You, you mean that's the Lamb of God? But we know where he was born. He was born in Nazareth. And, you know, he's a carpenter's son. He's a nobody. He doesn't look any different than anybody else. Exactly. From a human perspective, Jesus was completely one of us, like you and me. And therefore it says, he was despised, verse 3, and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You'd expect the king of the universe to come in a robe with a train and a lot of people following him around. No, in fact, he was so ordinary that he became even despised and rejected of men. And we didn't think he was important at all. That's the tragedy of the cross from a human perspective. This would be truly tragic life from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, as we go on, verses 4 through 6, central part of this whole poem, the center stanza, tells us some more incredible accomplishments of the cross. First, that our sin was paid for by the cross. Verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities, your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice our part in this, in our salvation. To be sheep that wander off. If you really study sheep, you, you know what they're like? For one, they're stupid. They are. They're completely foolish. Left to themselves, they will die. They can't take care of themselves. And so they're foolish. They do dumb things. They'll wander off in the most horrible circumstances that will get them into trouble every time. And they are completely helpless to defend themselves. Foolish, stupid, and helpless. That's what sheep are. So when it describes us in these verses, describes us as being people of iniquity, of transgression, of sin, and like sheep. Foolish and helpless. That's our part. (laughs) And we're all good at it. (laughs) We're all good at it. And we have, it says, not only sins, transgressions, where we do bad things, but we have in us iniquity, which that Hebrew word means an inner bent towards rebellion. That even if we do good things on the outside, we always have inside us an inner bent towards rebellion. That's our part. To go our own way, to be in control of our own lives. But it says... Our sin was paid for by him. He took on himself the punishment that you and I deserved. We deserve because God is holy and we're not. We deserve judgment. And yet he substituted himself for us. Now that's an incredibly huge theological idea. That he substituted himself for us. But all that means is he took my place. I should have been on that cross. I should have died and I should have been sent to hell. But Jesus elbowed us out of the way and took our place. There's a book I really enjoyed from World War II. It's a true story to end all wars. And it's a book written by a British prisoner who was a prisoner of the Japanese. 
And he and the, and the others in the prison camp were forced to build a railroad. Many of them died. It was hard work. It was brutal. And he describes one day in the prison camp when they'd worked all day, they'd been digging with shovels, they show up, they're lined up for a roll call as they come back, and the man who's counting the shovels said, one is missing. And the commander said, which one of you stole the shovel? No one stepped forward. So the Japanese commander said, okay, I'll die. He walked over to the first man to shoot him in the head, and the man said, I took it. commander walked over and killed him. Right then, the man who had been counting the shovels ran out and said, No, I counted wrong. They're all there. But that man stepped forward, substituted himself for the entire group of men that were there. That's just maybe a small picture of what Jesus did for us. He substituted himself for us. He took our place. He was innocent, yet, yet a willing sacrifice. And you know, in the story, that was part of how God changed that whole camp of prisoners of war, where they began to seek the Lord, and God began to move, and people began to come to Christ, and their attitude changed. God did an amazing work in that camp because of that sacrifice. Just as God has changed the world forever when Jesus paid the price for you and me. Suddenly we're free. We're free to follow him and trust him. This is described in many places again in the New Testament, but I just want to read Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. When you, put your own name in there, were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. The list of all your sins, past, present, future, and your iniquity that you deserve to die for, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So what happened on the cross? What did it accomplish? It took away the barrier that kept us from God. It paid for our sins. The fifth great accomplishment of the cross is that our souls were restored. Notice verse 5. Read it very carefully. The center of this entire poem. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Okay, so he took the penalty. He paid the price that, for you and me. But the second half, the punishment that brought us shalom, wholeness, a complete life, fulfillment was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's one thing to be declared not guilty. It's one thing to be said, okay, you're free to go. But what if you walk out and you still are a sinner? Your heart hasn't changed you're just going to mess up again. But what if on the cross, what good Jesus accomplished is He restored our souls. He brought shalom to our souls. He changed our hearts to give us new life, to make us new creations. That's exactly the message of the New Testament. That not only were we forgiven, but we were given His life, the Holy Spirit in us, we were made new. We were healed 
in our souls. Not just forgiven. Do you realize the incredible power of the cross? That you and I, once we receive Him, He plants His own life in us and begins to live through us. By faith, the New Testament describes we are united in the cross. We died with Him. The old us, the old enslaved to sin us, is dead. And now there's a new me that still has the flesh, so I do struggle. But inside, I am a son of God. I am a new creation. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and that is my true identity. Again, we could go to many places in Scripture, but we studied Romans. We are studying Romans, so let me go to chapter 6. We studied this passage recently. Romans 6, verse 6 and verse 7. For we know that our old self, our old person, our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but it means it's not really us. It's it's just kind of hanging around, but it's not really me. The new me is alive to God, his life in me. I'm a new creation. And only the cross could accomplish that. Only the cross. And that's why we have verses like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, it's a wild mystery, isn't it? That Jesus wants to live his life through us and we need to learn to depend on that life and it's a growing process. But what an incredible accomplishment of the cross. Cross not, brought, not only brought forgiveness, but by dying, Jesus released the power of the Holy Spirit so we could walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It restored our souls to being able to contain his life. Now these next verses, 7 through 9, remember our five stanzas. The fourth stanza, verses 7 through 9, is again the human perspective of Jesus' death on the cross. So let me read those and let's highlight it. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? You see, from a human perspective, Jesus was just oppressed. He was afflicted. It was horrible. Men did terrible things to him. But he went voluntarily. He he didn't argue. He didn't defend himself. He was an innocent victim. But a victim nevertheless. And it says... Who can speak of his descendants? How tragic, what a tragic life from a human perspective that here was a life that was a good life, cut off so early. He never had a chance to marry, never had a chance to have children, no legacy left. From a human perspective, Jesus' life was a washout. It was a waste. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Wonderful prophecy 
of Jesus being executed between two criminals on the cross. And with the rich in his death, a prophecy of Jesus who was buried in a rich man's tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, the human perspective, Jesus' death was such a waste. But now the last three verses, the last stanza, is again God proclaiming the incredible accomplishments of the cross. Where first of all he says, Jesus accomplished the creation of a whole new race. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. By his knowledge, a little further down, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. He will see his offspring. Now, wait a minute. We just said he didn't have any offspring. No, there were offspring. He created an entire new race. People from all nations. Everyone who believes in him suddenly becomes a child of God. And we become his offspring just like your children are offspring of yours where they become like you. Like it or not. (laughs) Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not so good, maybe. But to be Jesus' offspring, when we put our faith in Him, means we become like Him. A whole new race is created. A whole new people. Suddenly God's people, God's followers, are not just Israelites, just Jews, but it's everyone who will believe from every nation, every tribe. He's created Christians. Do you know what Christian means? It simply means Christ ones, Christ guys, Christ gals. People who are like Him. That was originally a derogatory term said by the Gentiles in Antioch. They said, look at those Christians. Well, if it means that we're like Him, may we be called true Christians. True Christians. We are his offspring, made like him. And then the final accomplishment of the cross that I want to highlight here is verse 10, where it says, It was the Lord's will to crush him. The will of the Lord caused this. In other words, it fulfilled the very plan of God. From a human perspective, Jesus' death was a tragic, random event. Here's a pretty good guy, a prophet, did good things, helped people, but, oh, his life was cut off. But what Isaiah says very clearly, 700 years before it even happened, this was God's plan all along. This was God's will. God planned to send Jesus to die for you and me even before the foundations of the world. And all through the Old Testament, it's prophesied, beginning in Genesis 3.15, where it says that, speaking to Eve, and that there would be the serpent, and that the serpent would bite the heel of mankind, but the seed would crush the serpent's head. Jesus was bitten, yes, but he crushed Satan. 
through the cross. And all the way through the Old Testament, it was prophesied this was God's plan from the very beginning, 700 years before Christ was born. In Galatians chapter 4, and again, we could go to many passages, but I just want to highlight this for you. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes this, But when the time had fully come, the time that God planned, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God planned this all along. The cross was His idea. And it simply fulfilled the plan of God. To summarize all these great accomplishments of the cross, I'd say this. The cross healed a broken humanity and revealed a glorious God. Healed a broken humanity and revealed the glory of who God is. So how should we respond to the glorious picture of the cross? A cross that is a tree of life. A tree of life for every one of us. Well, first, we should proclaim the cross. This is our message. And all through the New Testament, that's the message. That's the gospel. The cross. Foolishness to the world, but wisdom from God to bring life to a broken world. So let's proclaim it. It's not a tragedy from God's perspective, but it's an incredible triumph of God over sin and death. Secondly, we should imitate the cross. We're told that in the New Testament, that as followers of Jesus, we follow the way of the cross. The Christian life is not one of triumph on earth. It's a way of death and brokenness first, and then exaltation later. Jesus said, if you want to be a follower of me, Take up your cross daily and follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, be willing to die to yourself, to your own rights, to what you want out of life. Submit to God and learn to give your life away. Learn to live sacrificially for the sake of others so you can reflect the very character of God. So we should proclaim the cross. We should imitate the cross. And maybe more than anything, we should celebrate the cross. Celebrate it because it is our tree of life. In it, he took our sin away and made us new. I want to pray and then let's sing a song to celebrate the wondrous cross. Lord, thank you. We don't understand everything about the cross, Lord. It's, it's a mystery to us in some ways, and yet we see so clearly that it is a tree of life for us. That what looks so tragic from a human perspective is where you accomplished the healing of humanity and you revealed how glorious you are. So Lord, help us to be people of the cross who not only wear it, but who live it. We pray in Jesus, precious, glorious, exalted, humble name. Amen.